Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 to the end of the chapter. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time and he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, I'm Mike Taylor, not Mike Chin, so I'm the youth minister. Uh, it's great to see you. It's great not to be rushing from preaching at nine today, so I can just take my time. And uh, we're, we're not doing multiple hymns, like in waiting for Mike to come, so that's great. Um, yeah, Christy and I, Christy, that was a great kid's spot. I really thought <laughs> it was very encouraging. We had a chat about, um, yeah, preparing for today. And we also discussed the possibility of me not preparing for the sermon and how, how that would have gone down, but we decided just leave it to the kids' spot. Um, well, we're going to be, uh, again, hearing more about what it means to be prepared for Jesus, so how about I pray that we might do that through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word and how it prepares us uh, for your return. It prepares us to meet you and it, and it equips us to be wise and to be faithful with the time that we have. Please Equip us today that we might be alert, always waiting for you to return, that we might please you in all we do, looking forward to the reward. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I don't know if, if, like Chrissy, you've ever felt unprepared before. Um, When I asked my wife, do you have any illustrations of this about us? She mentioned about 20 about me. (laughs) Uh, Kept going on and on. I was like, well, this is (laughs) really interesting. Um, But there was one moment um, when we we were meant to go to Tasmania, and um, the, so um, that week, obviously probably a busy week, and I remember the night before thinking, oh, I haven't got any clean clothes. So I put all my clothes in the washing machine and they were washed overnight and the next morning we had to get off to the flight, so I had to get a whole bag full of wet clothes, <laughs> put them into a, a, you know, a bag, <laughs> put the bag into my other bag and t- just transported these wet clothes <laughs> to Tasmania, um, which is actually a really cold place where things don't dry. So uh, I remember feeling 
really unprepared that day. And it, it's, being unprepared, it's a horrible feeling, right? It, sometimes it can be, have really devastating consequences, especially when we know it could be easily avoided. And that's exactly what Jesus is preparing us for today. He, he wants to prepare us um, as his death draws near in, in the coming two chapters, the end of his public ministry, he wants to prepare his disciples, he wants to prepare us for his return. But first, a little bit of context, uh, which you would have looked at last week, uh, in verse 1 to 3, we see Jesus, the triumphant king, coming to the temple and then surprisingly departing the temple, which is, um, was not expected but it's happened one time before. It happened uh, earlier in uh, Ezekiel chapter 10 when the glory of the Lord departed the temple. And that meant judgment. And in verse 4 to 35, Jesus now goes on to answer the disciples' questions about when is um, the end of the days? What are the signs of these things? And so he starts talking about the signs of the end times. And a repeated refrain is, do not be deceived by false miracles or false Christs. And he talks about the importance in, in verse 4 to verse 14 of the need to persevere amidst trials and amidst persecutions and hardships. And then in verse 15 to 35, he focuses on a sign he calls the abomination of desolation from the book of Daniel 11, which I thought his church was going to have a hard time explaining that one. Uh, the simplest way I could describe it is uh, something extremely disrespectful happening to something very holy namely uh, the, the temple, or generally speaking, the temple. I believe uh, this happens in, in two ways. Uh, firstly, in the death uh, of Jesus Christ, uh, what greater abomination is there than the, the Son of God uh, being mocked and held up on a Roman cross to be crucified in public shame? In such a horrendous way. And in another sense, I believe there's a, a double fulfillment in the, the temple being destroyed, which firstly was, was ended by the, the tearing of the temple curtain, but finally came to an end in 70 AD when the armies uh, of Rome marched against Jerusalem uh, and just as Jesus predicted, not one stone would be left on another. The city was smashed to the ground, a million Jews were killed, 97,000 were taken to captivity. Uh, after, so this was after a large period of time where they were starved and horrible things happened to, for nursing mothers and others who were in there with no food, bringing an end to the temple, the place where God met with his people. This is a huge event in salvation history. And it's particularly clear in um, Luke 21, where Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation has come near. And at the end he says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus has been giving these signs these signs of the end, what the end times will look like. And then in verse 36, Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, I think four, there are four things that signify we've got a change in theme here. Uh, firstly, but, right, he's contrasting what he's just talked about, which is all these this generation will not pass away in verse 34 until all these things happen. Now we've got to change anything. But secondarily, he's been talking in, in places like verse 19 and, and so on about those days. Now he talks about the day. So there's a change. It's gone from plural to singular. Thirdly, in verse 37, there's four. And so I think what we see in verse 36 is then continued 
following on afterwards rather than referring to what's come before. And there's a shift from predictions. Jesus says, this is how you know these, these are the signs, right? And he lists them. And now this one, it's unpredictable. It's something no one knows, not even even the sun. So now Jesus moves on to speak in an event that is completely unknowable and has no prior warning. And so this is, this is the first thing I think we, we get from the passage. What we don't know, when Jesus will return. Verse 36 to 37 says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, the Son of Man um, is one of Jesus' favourite titles, and it's used many, many times in, in the book of Daniel and again in Ezekiel, but particularly in Daniel, uh, in chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, uh, the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, will approach the Ancient of Days and will receive all authority over all kingdoms and His kingdom will have no end. And um, we see this most likely happening in Matthew 28 when, when Jesus says to His disciples, all authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. So through Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the Father, he comes to the ancient of days and he receives all authority. So that's that's um, a key significant defining moment for Jesus as the Son of Man. But I think something else is going on here. Um, not just his death and his resurrection. Well, it could be. Let's let's work out what's going on. Um, when is this? When is this day? When is this hour? That Jesus is talking about. The first option is his death. Now, the day of the hour, the hour language from this point on is now picked up in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in the next chapter. And it's just as Jesus is being betrayed in chapter 26, verse 45, Jesus says, The hour is at hand, the Son of Man is betrayed. And then we get the sequence of times being pointed out until the ninth hour. When in chapter 27, verse 45, Jesus um, is crucified. So the hour language features very heavily in Matthew. However, in chapter 26, verse 2, so in the very next chapter, Jesus says that you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified, which sets up the sequence of time that we're talking about. So in one sense, our language is there, time language is there, but at the same time, Jesus actually says the exact day when he is going to die. Um, and so I don't think Jesus' death is, is, is ultimately what is in view with this day and this hour, though obviously his death sets in motion um, what he is going to happen subsequently. I think option two, the return of Jesus, I think that's ultimately what, what is being referred to. Uh, though the death, Jesus' death and the return are, are linked together. Uh, And the day that Jesus talks about, I think, is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a really significant um, moment in in salvation history referred to in the Old Testament 18 times. It's referred to particularly in places like Zechariah and Malachi and Joel. Um, And also then that day is mentioned another 208 times. And I think one of the best places you can go, if you want to flip there, you can, is Joel 2. And what you get in Joel chapter 2 is you get this idea of the day of the Lord being firstly a day of judgment. And so in the first couple of verses, um, he says, 
Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there, that is spread among the mountains. A great and powerful people, like, like their like, has never been before, nor will ever again through the years of all generations. So we get this idea, it's, the trumpet is blown, it's dark, judgment is coming and multiple times when the day of the lord is mentioned it's 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 fire it's judgment um it's god coming in wrath but later in joel in the same chapter you also get the idea that the day of the lord is a day of salvation because um you get this reference to this moment when i will he will pour out his spirit on all flesh um and and then his male and female servants will prophesy everyone will prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, verse 30, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a day of judgment, but it's also a day of salvation. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, is picked up not just here by Jesus, but later on in the New Testament, um, it's picked up in, um, Joel 2 is picked up in Acts chapter 2, the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, beginning the end days. Um, but ultimately, generally, it's pointing to the second coming of Jesus. We see this in places like 2 Peter 3. You see this in places like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, and then chapter 2. And as you can see, I think it's particularly helpful in 1 Peter 3 because you see the same phrases are used. Um, the day, the day of the Lord, uh, where people were unaware and swept away um, or deluged with water and perished. And there's this reference to the thief. Jesus talks about if the, the master had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And again, Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away. And in 2 Peter, it's referring to the second coming of Jesus when uh, there's this re, um, recreation event where the world is destroyed and, and recreated, so to speak. Uh, it's a day of judgment, the day of the return of the Lord. And I think there's, uh, when we think about this, this moment, um, there's two ways we can think about it. Let's think about it in the next slide from the Old Testament believer's vantage point. Whenever it's talking about the day of the Lord, um, the Old Testament believer thinks this is the day of salvation, it's the day particularly of judgment, um, it's this defining moment. It's one moment in time, the day of the Lord. They see this mountain peak, the day of the Lord. Um, but then we get to the New Testament and some of that language, particularly in Zechariah, um, places like uh, chapter 14, talks kind of like seems like it's alluding to the death of Jesus. All right? um, the, the night, go, everything goes dark. Um, and in chapter 13, it's the idea of you know, um, a fountain opening up for the healing of the nations, like Jesus' side, and then Pentecost, right, the pouring out of the Spirit. So in some sense, it, it, it comes in, in, in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the Pentecost. But there's another peak that the Old Testament believers can't see, that we can only see this side of the cross looking back and being at what Jesus said now looking forward. It's the return of Jesus as well. The day of the Lord, um, in a sense, is, is two moments, ultimately, the return of Jesus. And we live in between those two moments. I've got another diagram on your sheet, which is slightly different. But essentially, we're living in between those two moments and we're looking forward to that full and final day of the Lord when judgment comes. 
verse 34, Jesus had said, this, no, this generation will not pass away, but now Jesus says, no one knows. No one knows when his return will happen. In fact, Jesus doesn't even know the date of his own return. And this raises a very interesting question. How is it that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, God himself, doesn't know everything? Doesn't he know everything? So, yes, we want to say in Jesus' divine nature, Jesus knows everything. But, but what, what happened when Jesus came to earth is he became fully human. He took on a human nature as well as having a divine nature. He didn't just appear human. And so, while the Son of uh, God the Son is present everywhere, Jesus chose to walk, to limit himself and walk everywhere. While he is all-powerful, he chose a human body so that he needed rest and to feed his body. Though he is all-knowing, he needed to grow in wisdom. Why? So that he could live a genuinely human life. And it seems as if, while he was on earth, he chose to some degree to limit his knowledge. Now, if Jesus didn't know, need to know the, the moment that he returns, neither do we. So, if, if we, what we don't know, Jesus' return, what we can't do, we can't predict, predict when Jesus will return. Now, we might think this is really clear. Who would be silly enough to predict the return of Jesus? Many, many people. <laughs> many. Like, throughout church history, five, around 500 AD, Christians looked at the dimensions of Noah, Noah's Ark. That seemed like a good idea. And they said, yeah, it's going to return 500 AD. Uh, again, in like the, the Middle Ages, a pope, when it's the, the year of um, six, 618 when, uh, when, when Islam was born, plus the number of the beast, 666, it's 1,200 and something AD, didn't happen then either. Um, then there's the, the Mormon church announced that Jesus would re return 56 years um, uh, after someone predicted it, which was in the 1800s, Jesus didn't return. The founder of Jehovah's Witnesses predicted Jesus' return in 1914, but invisibly. So, he didn't return, or maybe he did. <laughs> um, and here's my favourite. In 1998, a Taiwanese cult in Texas claimed that Christ... <laughs> yeah, this is going to be good. That Christ would return and invite his faithful followers aboard a UFO <laughs> spaceship. And surprise, Jesus didn't return. But the UFO watches are still out there. Um, now, we might laugh at these scenarios, but in a, in a serious sense, they actually are people making empty promises that Jesus never made, that actually bring Jesus' name, uh, Jesus, his followers, into disrepute. The key is, if Jesus doesn't know the day, then we can trust our Father's wisdom and our, his goodness, just as Jesus did. And we can strive to live in light of what he has said, whilst we don't know when Jesus will return. So, we can't predict when Jesus is going to return, but there is something we do know. Jesus will return suddenly. Verse 37 to 39, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So now Jesus um, illustrates the unpredictability and, and sudden nature of his return through an illustration of the flood in Noah's day. 
On that day, the world's wicked were were caught completely by surprise whilst they went about their ordinary activities. However, Noah and his family, um, seven other people, were prepared, even though they didn't know the specific moment when the flood was going to happen, right up until the last moment. They were prepared. So we move from that illustration to another illustration in verse 40 to 41, where it says, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And some have taken this to refer to uh, this idea of a rapture, which is um, this view that um, when uh, Jesus will return and then his followers, the church, Christians, will be taken up into heaven, leaving everyone else who doesn't trust in Jesus wandering around on earth and then things are going to get really bad and maybe there's an opportunity for a second chance. Is that what's going on? Is it, is it the rapture? It's kind of, first glance you think, well, that kind of looks, looks like reasonable. Well, I think um, there are two options. Personally, I think the idea of take, looking at the, the language of taken is, is important. What does that word mean? In one sense, like the actual word can mean to take into close association with oneself. Um, so almost like taken to Jesus. And we see that language picked up in, in John chapter 14, verse 3, when Jesus is comforting his, his um, disciples right before the eve of his uh, crucifixion and betrayal, where he says, you know, I will, uh, I will go, but then I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me that you might be with me where I am. So there, it could be that idea of just being taken to Jesus while others are left under God's judgment. Or it can mean judgment, taken for judgment, and in verse 39, the, the, the word swept away also means taken. And in that context, it's swept away or taken into judgment. And because this is the immediate context, I think that's what's going on. I think the idea of being taken is taken into judgment. One will be taken into judgment and another will be left and remain in Christ. For a time, the saved and the lost will work together and will live together. But when Jesus returns, many will be taken away into judgment, just as the wicked were swept away at the time of the flood. Boxing Day, uh, 2004, I believe it was, uh, 230,000 people died on one day by a 30-metre tsunami that was 9.1 on this scale. Imagine what it would have been like on that day. Imagine you're on an overseas beach holiday with your family. You've finally taken that much-needed time away from work to rest and spend time with your family. You wake up, you do your normal routine. You put on your your swimmers, you head down the beach, and just while you and your family are are finally getting that much-needed relaxing time, you're splashing around in the water, all of a sudden you see the wave receding out. And you see a wall of water towering above you and you realize in that moment with this pang of striking fear there's nothing you can do to escape it's too late this is what it's going to be like when Jesus will return when that great flood of God's judgment comes upon the world it will be sudden and it will be unexpected and none but those who have taken refuge in Jesus will escape. 
So if that's what we know, Jesus will return suddenly, what must we do? We must prepare ourselves for Jesus' return. In this last section, Jesus uses two parables. Now, parables um, are like stories about the kingdom with a hidden meaning that Jesus reveals to some through faith and conceals from other others in, in a way of um, confirming them in judgment for those who fail to trust in Jesus and take his word seriously and build their lives on it. So in one sense, they save, and in another sense, they harden. In a way, they're like, um, they're like automatic doors, if you've ever gone to, into a building. Uh, but here's the thing about automatic doors. Until you approach and the sensor picks you up, they don't open. And in a, in a similar way, until you've got faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you, we're not able to enter in and for the doors to open to fully understand the meaning, which is generally a heart-transformative um, uh, ch- change that it's meant to bring about in us in the way we understand the kingdom and, and respond to it. And so in this first uh, parable of, of um, judgment that Jesus refers to, we've got a mini parable in verse 43 to 44, and it talks about a thief coming in the night to catch the master off guard. So, so that, that the return of Jesus will be like a thief uh, taking his master completely off guard. I don't know if you've ever been burgled before, um, but I remember at in Forbes, because my relatives all live in Forbes, generally no one locks their doors in Forbes, and you know, every like once a year they have a big fair, uh, and everyone goes to the fair. Um, and so everyone is there, and one year, knowing that everyone was going to be at the fair, knowing in Forbes, in the middle of the, the country, no one locks their door, this, this group of people went on a massive burglary spree, and literally went house to house to house down streets, and just took everything, right? Everything of value. And they were completely unaware, because every year they go to this fair, every day they don't lock their doors, and then suddenly... Someone saw the opportunity and all their possessions were gone. Jesus says that is what his return will be like, the returning of the sum, coming of the Son of Man. And then he introduces the principle of alertness in these verses, which is fleshed out in the second parable in verse 45 to 51. And Jesus introduces a servant who is given responsibility to care for his master's servants in verse 45. And I, I personally noticed four, five characteristics about each of these, um, this servant. Um, you might point out more. Firstly, the good servant. He's faithful, he's described as faithful and wise, and trustworthy with his responsibilities. Secondly, which that, that kind of means he cares for others. He cares for those other servants under his watch. In verse 45, he says, the servants, he gives the servants their food at the proper time. Thirdly, the good servant aims to please his master, not himself. So by doing all of those responsibilities, he's not sitting back and just enjoying himself, but he does what his master has asked. Fourthly, the good servant prioritizes the future over the present. He forgoes selfish indulgence for a greater reward. And that's the fifth, the fifth thing I observed. The good servant is rewarded with a permanent place in his master's house. In verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. He's promoted from just a servant to a steward, from a temporary role to a permanent role. However, the wicked servant 
thinks his master will be delayed in verse 48. And this implies, second one, the wicked servant thinks he will not be held to account. In verse 49, he says the wicked servant, says the wicked servant begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. Thirdly, the wicked servant then aims to please himself and not his master. Fourthly, the wicked servant thinks only of the present, well, how, well, how he can be satisfied and, and, and indulged, not the inevitable future, and so he was unprepared for his master's return. And fifthly, the wicked servant is punished in the most torturous way. Verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the shock of the severity of the punishment is meant to shock us into a response. With the idea that we're meant to be ever vigilant, ever constantly awaiting the return of Jesus. Because if we are not, he will catch us off guard. I remember um, looking after uh, house-sitting, Pip and I house-sat... uh, these friends' house. They had a very nice house. They had two very nice Audis, which they said, feel free to drive them. One of them was a family Audi, one was a sports Audi. I chose to drive around in the sports Audi, um, you know, which was um, risky, um, but I did it. And, and, as I, and, and as I did that, I actually scraped the rim of the Audi. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, what am I going to do? It's going to cost a lot of money. But I knew, but the, here's the thing, I knew when the owners were going to return. So I actually had enough to t- time to take the car to the shop and got them to repair the wheel. And like, and you, when they returned, you could have just, I was just standing in front of the wheel, good to see you, you know, and just hoping that he didn't notice that this wheel had been damaged. But th- th- this is different, right? I knew when the master was going to return, so I was able to prepare but we're not going to know when, when the master does return, when Jesus will return. And so it leaves some questions for self-reflection. The first one is, am I faithful? Am I faithful? Like the wise servant or am I like a, the hypocrite, uh, the wicked servant? And the attitude of the wicked servant, I think, matches quite well the, the Pharisees of Jesus' time. Think about it. 400 years since the last message from God, nothing from God. The day of the Lord doesn't seem like it's coming anytime soon. And Jesus uses the same language of hypocrisy of the wicked servant against the Pharisees. In chapter 23, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. It is for this reason that Jesus rebukes them in the temple where the house language is picked up. My house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus says they have failed to care for God's people. They've indulged and used the temple for their own own selfish gain. They've perverted justice, ignored the needs of the sick and the needy, used the temple as a place where they could make money. So in one sense, there's a very direct application that the Pharisees would have uh, definitely, hopefully, have understood was directed at themselves. Um, but what does that mean for us if, if, in that first instance? Well, if most, in most of Jesus' parables, Jesus describes two characters. But here, Jesus envisages one character with two hypothetical scenarios. 
involving the same character. Look at verse 48. Right after talking about the faithful and wise servant, it says in verse 48, but if that, ser- that wicked servant, it's the same servant, but he's wicked this time, says to himself, my master is delayed. The point is, merely claiming to be a servant of God, merely claiming to be a Christian isn't enough. The servant highlights the fact that someone might look like a Christian, but ultimately live in a way that leads to judgment. And in, in a sense, for a disciple, we might feel comfortable, but we might go astray. In the same way the servant was commended for caring for his fellow servants, in 25 verse 40, Jesus says, As you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, in the next chapter, you did to me. In other words, there's a sense in which we will be judged based upon how we, will love God, how we have loved God's people. So in this sense, we prepare ourselves for Jesus' return by loving God's people. Because our brothers and sisters, um, as we do this, we demonstrate our love for Jesus. Um, just, uh, we haven't been able to access our bathroom for a little while. So the, the Quans, uh, a family at 9am, have been super generous. We've been having, um, they've invited us over for meals uh, and bath, bath time. This is the, I got a photo of us having, having a meal and having bath time over there just yesterday. It was a lot of fun. Um, during the lockdown, they provided toilet paper and nappies and wipes and toothpaste and all sorts of things. Um, there's, there's an example of, of, of loving um, Jesus' people. And I think this, this idea of loving God's people is a challenge for someone who isn't regular at church or growth group, who isn't regular at meeting with God's people. You can't love God's people if we're not gathering with them on a regular basis. And so this is a challenge, I think, also to people who might have grown up as a Christian, served a lot at kids and youth ministry, but, um, you know, in their later on, full-time job, family, um, serving is no longer a priority. Uh, they're not, maybe, they're maybe drifted away from serving in any significant way. So in some sense, our ongoing faithfulness in our service of Jesus is a test of our genuine love for Jesus. But this raises a question, and I, I know we're thinking about it, are we saved by works? No, we're not saved by works, we're saved by Jesus' life, death and resurrection. This is uh, Martin Luther, the famous reformer, once said, we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Saving faith transforms us. So love is a fruit of the Spirit, which necessarily produces the good works in the life of a believer. But this is the thing, it's not enough just to have the right answers. The Pharisees were very orthodox in their beliefs. They claimed to love God, but they, they lacked the love of God and neighbour in their life. And so similarly, Jesus says in Matthew 7, there, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, and only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So we are saved, but we're saved for a purpose, right? We're saved to be faithful. Time is given, as a quote I've got on the board, time is given us to spend in usefulness, not in idleness. Money lost may be regained, but a moment never. So in one sense, there's an application um, to how we steward our time for Jesus in these last days. Um, secondly, am I watchful in prayer? In the very next chapter, in chapter 26 Matthew of, Je- of Matthew, Jesus uses the language of watchful in the Garden of Gethsemane. Knowing he's about to be betrayed, twice Jesus commanded his disciples to keep watch and to pray. But twice Jesus finds his disciples sleeping. 
Jesus knew they needed God's strength and alertness that they might remain faithful when opposition came. But they slept because they didn't understand that the hour was upon them. And thus Jesus' betrayer came and he was arrested by the Roman soldiers. They were caught off guard. Temptation came in the form of abandoning Jesus. And in verse 56, all the disciples left him and fled. Like the disciples, we are to expect opposition and temptation. For this reason, Jesus gives us this prayer in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For this reason, he's warning us to stay awake, to stay alert, to be watchful, to be prayerful. Because who in our own strength can resist the power of temptation when they rise up in us? Think of how cleverly temptation have pleaded with us for just one small indulgence. Such prayers protect us from temptation, make us more aware and more alert of the realities of temptation all around us. So in this way, prayer helps us to be watchful. So how is your prayer life? Uh, There's a quote by John Piper where he says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will prove to be on the last day that prayerlessness was not just a lack of time. So at a practical level, in part the disciples' problem was they they were tired. Um, But they didn't take it seriously. They didn't take the burden of prayer seriously. So I think we need to encourage one another with prayerfulness. And I think this is something we need to do together. We need to encourage each other to be praying for one another and to be praying together. How great would it be if this congregation... um, during the week, people were calling each other up to pray for each other, messaging each other, meeting up to pray. How, what a great sign of watchfulness for the return of Jesus. I don't think um, this, anyone in this church would be led away um, through temptation if we were constantly vigilant in prayer for one another and for ourselves. So, um, so watchfulness in prayer is the second thing to reflect on. Thirdly, am I right with Jesus? In 2 Peter 3.9, Peter says... The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, remember the passage last week. All the signs have been fulfilled before the return of Jesus. Jesus is ready at any moment. And the only reason we still have time is for sinners to repent, which means to turn back to Jesus. We're on borrowed time. Jesus will return suddenly. So the question is, are you right with Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? And why not do it today? And if you have a Christian friend here and you're not someone who yet trusts Jesus, why not pray with them after this service? It's very simple. It's as simple as A, B, C, D. Admit your sin. Believe in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. See, consider the cost of following Jesus and D, decide to pray to God for forgiveness and for his help to live with Jesus as Lord. So are you right with Jesus? And finally, to the believers out there, am I concerned for the lost? The language of weeping and gnashing and cutting into pieces is horrible. It's an image of hell. Yes, God is loving, but he is just, and he will punish evil fully and finally. Have you considered, do you often consider how horrible the fate is of those who don't turn to Jesus? The, the, the Bible describes it, there's some verses coming on the screen, as a place of punishment, of banishment, of destruction, of ruin. 
In hell, people will be filled with such bitterness and anger that they'll be, they won't even be able to express their rage, but they'll just gnash their teeth. The worm will eat, the fire will burn forever. And Matthew 25 says it's, it will be an eternal fire. So the biblical picture is, of hell is one of terrible horror. And it's more terrible than any images that Jesus might be able to uh, help us with. It should bring in us not only a fear of God, a right reverence of God, but it should a fear that leads to a change in priority, a motivation to go to the world, to the lost, with the gospel of Jesus. Here's a letter an atheist wrote who um, actually, I think, understood the gravity of hell more than most Christians do. Do you consider yourself to be a compass- compassionate to other humans? If you're right, as you say you are, and believe that, then how can you sleep at night? When you speak with me, you're speaking with someone who you believe is walking directly into eternal damnation, into an endless onslaught of horrendous pain, which your loving God created, yet you stand by and do nothing. If you believe one bit that thousands every day were falling into an eternal and unreachable fate, you should be running the streets mad with rage at their blindness. Imagine the horrors hell must have in store if the Bible is true. You're just going to allow that to happen and not care about saving anyone but yourself? If you're right, then you're uncaring, unemotional and purely selfish person that has no right to talk about subjects such as love and care. So if we love our neighbour, we will do all we can to prepare them for Jesus' return. We will go into the streets. I've been going out sometimes before Bible study with people from my growth group. Maybe you could do that. We will tell our work friends. We will tell our family. For there is a place of refuge. There is an ark which shelters us from the storm of God's judgment, and that is the cross of Jesus. On one day, on Boxing Day, 230,000 people died. In one day. The problem was in the Indian Ocean... It was poor, a poor area. They didn't have early warning systems. People didn't know it was coming. However, there was a girl on that beach called Tilly Smith. She was 10 years old. And she recalled her geography class. She recognised the signs of receding water on the shoreline and the frothing of the, the waves was a sure sign of, of a tsunami. And she told her parents. Her parents told the resort and they managed to save every single person on that beach that day, on that particular beach. A hundred people were saved that day. Jesus' word today is our early warning system. So let's heed it before it's too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the good shepherd, that he warns us of the dangers that are in front of us. And he prepares us with his word, that we might not be taken off guard. I pray that no one here will be taken off guard on that day, but that all will turn to Jesus and and in this time that we might make ourselves useful for you you for when you return. In Jesus' name, amen.